similarly, we also have our own ability to set um, our own agenda. And so I've just, yeah, I just finished one, um, one term uh, on the, on the um, juridical committee. We sit here, you can see the, the, the palace in uh, Rio de Janeiro where, where we have the pleasure of, of meeting uh, in non-COVID times. And the project um, got its origins uh, when in um, 2016, uh, the committee was meeting with uh, foreign ministry legal advisors from um, various uh, OAS member states. And a number of them kind of raised the, the question of whether the committee would take up um, kind of a, a set of problems that they were seeing. So Brazil in particular was asking about what do we do about MOUs, memorandums of understanding? You know, uh, how are we supposed to understand them? What is the practice? Are there, are there you know, particular rules for making them or identifying them? What sort of status, legal status might they have and the like? And a couple of other states kind of echoed that concern uh, and then kind of added on top, I think it was uh, Peru and then Chile uh, came in and said, well, we also want to talk or we want more information about what we call interinstitutional uh, agreements. And that is agreements between institutions of states that are not done on behalf of the state itself necessarily. So you can think of what, what we might call interministerial or interagency agreements when a treasury department of state A and treasury department of state B enter into an agreement or agreements among subnational territorial units. So uh, when uh, a, you know, one of the states uh, of Mexico purports to enter into, into an agreement with a Canadian province, say, or the like. And so you know, the, the foreign ministry legal advisors kind of suggested that we, they were seeing an increasing practice on both fronts, uh, that there's a rise in, in, in the conclusion of these sorts of agreements. And they asked for the committee to, to take up the topic. And uh, I guess because I have that background, as mentioned, working on the Oxford Guide to Treaties, um, I was asked to be the rapporteur. Uh, and so you know, we kind of embarked on a project to create guidelines. Uh, on, on binding uh, and non-binding uh, agreements. And um, I would say, you know, from the outset, the, the notion was that, that there's a real value um, functionally in having flexibility in different types of agreement forms that states and their subnational territorial units and their agencies might pursue, uh, both in terms of uh, the speed with which some may be concluded, their flexibility uh, and, and their credibility. But at the, the same time, I think there's definitely a sense that there are challenges, uh, particularly when you have unaligned expectations or unaligned practices about these sorts uh, of agreements. And so the idea was, could we come up with some guidelines, definitions, um, best practices, uh, and the like. And so that, that led to, uh, and, I, and I do not uh, suggest anyone do this, to seven reports on, on, on my part. You know, I was always kind of modeled after Alain Pelé's, you know, I think he did 14 on reservations. And I, you know, used to joke about it, but, but I did seven uh, very lengthy reports over the course of four years um, that uh, culminated in a, in a set of guidelines that the committee, uh, we approved this past uh, August. Um, I think there may have been a link on the, the website for this event. They are um, now available in, uh, I believe, four languages, English, Spanish, um, uh, French, and Portuguese. Um, and, and as I suggested, the, the idea here is that these are voluntary guidelines. This is, uh, this is not a codification of international law project, it is, uh, nor is it even a, an attempt to progressively develop the law. It's more in a world where we have different sets of practices, how can we improve transparency about what those different practices are and try and kind of find ways to navigate to avoid 
situations where states end up, uh, you know, one state agree concludes uh, an MOU thinking it's it's a legally binding treaty, and another state thinks it's a non-binding political commitment, and that produces uh, problems internationally, maybe even a dispute, or it produces problems for one of the states domestically because maybe its domestic law requires, uh, you know, the agreement to take a particular form, or uh, you know, one form requires domestic procedures that the other doesn't, and the like. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to list here the, you know, just by way of background, what went into this and maybe in the Q and a, we can, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, but it was, a, you know, the project was, was a mixture of scholarly work on my part, but also formal consultations with the member states. So, um, uh, 13 states ended up providing, uh, formal responses, uh, to my inquiries on the status of binding and non-binding agreements. I also had the good fortune to present it uh, in several contexts in the United Nations, actually. Uh, and there, in particular, there were some events hosted by Canada and Colombia in concert with the uh, 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties that allowed me to get inputs from some non-OAS member states on their treaty law and practices or their practices on all sorts of agreements including Germany, Mexico, uh, Korea, Spain, uh, and the like. All right. so. I think the, the central thing that, that, that uh, I tried to build this project around in which the rest of the committee joined me uh, in, in, in doing was that was around the idea of agreement. And it's interesting when you actually think about it and you look at international law, the, the concept of agreement is, is pretty um, under conceptualized uh, in, in, in international life. You know, it, you go back to the Vienna Convention of Law of Treaties, Travaux, or, or the ILC's work uh, on the on the their draft law of treaties, and you know everybody uses the term, but it's rarely defined. And yet, I do think that that it kind of provides a a central point of departure for for not just this project, but for how states might think about things. And and the idea is, you know, first let's begin with: Do you have an agreement? All right, as opposed to just what you know in, in diplomatic parlance we we call a deliverable. You know, sometimes. Uh, when we used to meet in person, uh, you know, foreign ministry officials or others would get together and they'd, you know, they'd, they'd produce pieces of paper to show that they'd had a meeting, but there's no agreement uh, even, even in, in those documents. And of course, on the other end, you also have states unilaterally occasionally deciding to issue statements uh, or unilateral declarations, which depending on the context can have, uh, can have, some, can have some legal force uh, in, in international law. And so the project begins with the idea that, that we are looking for mutual consent to some sort of commitment regarding um, future behavior, right? That's, that's what we might think about agreements being defined as in the international space. So it has two elements, mutuality and commitment. So mutuality, we're talking about things here that are not unilateral, the, you know, not a unilateral declaration by a single state, but involve multiple states or multiple subjects uh, of international law. And at the same time, they're not, the, that there is some uh, normative component to it, some setting of expectations with regards to, to future behavior, uh, whether something that you are planning to do or something that you're planning not to do or something you might be permitted to do. Um, and, and you know, with that kind of encompassed definition of agreement as a point of departure, we can, and then can look out at, into the international space and start to categorize agreements into different forms. And as you can see here, I think the biggest division, dividing line is those that are binding, uh, and they can be binding either as a matter of international law, if that's the governing law, we call those instruments uh, uh, treaties or those agreements treaties, 
or they can be governed by domestic law or uh, what some of my private international law colleagues call non-state law. You know, think about uni droit or, or, or the like, and those are contracts. So contracts are agreements binding under one or more domestic laws. Treaties are agreements governed by international law. And then there's also the possibility of what we call, what I call political commitments or, or non-binding agreements, which have in international practice been around for more than a century under various titles. You know, they were at a, a different time, you know, used under the gendered term uh, gentlemen's agreements, but you also see, you know, uh, informal agreements uh, is another term that's frequently used. And the idea here is that there's an agreement, right? There's multiple uh, entities coming together, committing to future behavior, but the, the basis uh, of the commitment is not drawing on the law, it's drawing on something else. And that might be morality, you know, you keep your, you keep your promises. Uh, it might be the politics uh, in international relations where, you know, the, your, your reputation or what have you drives your uh, intent to, to follow through. But the idea is that it is, is outside the legal order. And I'm, I assume in the, in the Q&A, we might have a discussion as Jan Klobbers and I have off and on now for well over a decade, you know, you know what is the, the theoretical basis for this political commitment uh, concept? But I will tell you uh, from the OAS perspective and the project's perspective that, you know, every single state that I heard from accepts this category of political commitments and increasingly relies on it, that the states seem to find real value in having a category of agreements uh, that are not legal in either a domestic law or an international law sense. To complicate things, what I, I found when I asked states and did my own research was that that concept of interinstitutional agreements that I, I mentioned at the outset um, is, is, um, is ambiguous, right? That, that what I found was that some states believe their institutions can do treaties. Uh, um, um, some states said that they can do contracts. Some states said they could only do political commitments and some member states said they could do all three. And so in some ways that term interinstitutional agreement doesn't tell you very much because the interinstitutional agreement might be a treaty, it might be a contract, it might be a political commitment. And so, you know, it's not enough to identify, you know, uh, an agreement between two government ministries or two subnational entities, um, you, you have to, are gonna have to dig further. And so part of what this project was designed to do was to, to think about how, how, we, might, how we might do that. Um, so I, I put up the link to the guidelines here. Um, basically they, they have kind of six components. Um, you know, first and foremost, I was trying to come up with some common definitions uh, like the ones I just kind of uh, elucidated for you. You know, what are these types of binding and non-binding agreements uh, out there? Um, uh, Capacity, who can make what types of agreements? So that is uh, in the international space, who are the treaty makers? Who can do political commitments? Who can do uh, contracts and the like? And how do we identify different agreement types? So what are the methods we might use to discern one type uh, from, from the other? Um, and uh, procedures, what are the processes that uh, states, particularly in the OAS region were using uh, uh, to conclude their agreements and what are the processes, if any, that in their institutions were using to conclude these agreements uh, internationally or transnationally as it were. And what legal effects, if any, follow the conclusions uh, of, of an international agreement and, and how do we think about them directly or indirectly and, and where uh, do these effects come from? And finally, um, uh, the project, uh, you know, we, uh, I put together a set of steps to try and think about training and education, uh, both within foreign ministries, um, but also across governments on these sorts of different categories, different procedures and different effects. So that, you know, particularly in the region, but maybe beyond, 
um, states and their representatives might have a better sense of, um, you know, being clear eyed as they go into uh, when they're doing agreements, and if so, what kind of agreement they're doing and what the consequences for that might be. I should say at some point, um, I, you know, I recognize this this topic um, uh, made me a little dry. So if anybody has questions as we're going along, I know we're going to do Q&A at the end, but feel free to interrupt uh, and you can just, you know, Zoom bomb me with a question if you feel like it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to, to try and uh, um, to field your questions uh, now as well as at the end. Um, in terms of the capacity to conclude um, international uh, agreements, you know, obviously I started with the treaty. Uh, the easiest part of the, the work was that, you know, uh, states uh, have the capacity to conclude treaties. Indeed, it is, it is you know, uh, maybe a cap, maybe a criterion of statehood, uh, or at least uh, indelibly linked to the idea that all states have the capacity to conclude treaties. Of course, you have to look at the treaty to see who the, you know, the treaty's terms may dictate further conditions on which states uh, may enter. Uh, and, you know, states themselves obviously may condition uh, according to various procedures, how they'll do so. But, you know, that, that didn't seem to be too uh, difficult a conclusion. And indeed, you see um, states doing treaty making, uh, you know, both as states qua states, but also as governments. So, and I, I didn't really see a real difference between, you know, when the government of the United States concludes uh, the agreement versus when the United States of America concludes uh, the agreement. I think for our purposes, the more interesting question uh, is what about these state institutions, right? Whether they're agencies, um, you know, uh, a commerce department, or, or you know, uh, you know, the state of Pennsylvania or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I live, how do we how do we regard those agreements? And what I found was that there are in a number of states that that will regard those agreements as governed by international law and therefore meeting the definition of treaty uh, as I as I used it uh, in this in this um, in these guidelines and, and that is basically all you know if the agreement's governed by international law it's going to be a treaty and just because it's concluded by a non-state actor doesn't remove it from the treaty character. Uh, did I hear somebody was trying to get in with a question? I'll use the moment to get a sip of coffee then. Um, for the for these you know institutional actors though, uh, you know I think there's some preconditions that states that uh, will allow them to do treaties kind of impose. One is obviously they have to be competent in the matter uh, that that the the treaty purports to address. So you know a tax ministry might you know might have the competence to exchange tax information with uh, counterpart ministries uh, overseas. But you know they're not going to be able to do exchange intelligence uh, or military information. Um, beyond that, I think you want to see that the state itself has authorized the say the subnational entity or authorized its agencies to conclude um, conclude treaties, uh, and some have done so. You know, again, the United States in particular uh, authorizes its agencies to conclude treaties in their own names, um, and others. States like Mexico authorize their, you know, their their states, their subnational territorial units, to do so, and so you have to look and see is there that capacity has it been conveyed? And some states will deny it. So a number of OAS member states, for example, do not uh, accord their ministries the ability to enter into treaties, just as others do not accord their subnational territorial units the capacity to do so. And finally, the, the third kind of element is not just competence, not turn, not just internal authority to go off and make treaties, but 
external uh, consent. And that is the, the potential treaty partners have to accept uh, a willingness to do the treaty uh, with uh, a, you know, a, a state's institution instead of the state itself. And you know, there are numerous examples of this, mostly bilateral. Um, you, know, you do have the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which allows for certain non-state actors to join uh, in their own right. Um, you have the kind of the customs union admission criteria for the WTO. But by and large here, we are talking about you know, bilateral or, or, or maybe some plurilateral uh, agreements where the question is, you know, will either a state do an agreement with a, another state's institution you know, the United States, for example, with Quebec did an agreement on social security or a, what, I, you know, that inter-institutional agreement where two agencies or two subnational territorial units uh, enter into a treaty. Um, you know, I, I put up here international organizations, I'm happy to talk about it, but that was not really a focus of the project, but I, you know, you know, it, it does uh, expand on the notion that treaties are going to be defined by whether they're governed by international law more than who concludes them um, and you know various subjects of international law can do so. Um, I think when we come to contracts, uh, you know, the capacity is going to be dictated by, in some sense, first and foremost, the governing law of the contract, right? Um, if, the, if the contract purports to be governed by a particular state's domestic law, that that law will dictate what entities it, the, that law recognizes as having a contractual capacity. Um, you know, for certain entities, state institutions and private actors, um, you know, they may be creatures of another domestic legal system, which may condition uh, what sorts of agreements they may conclude. Um, but I think it was it was interesting to confirm uh, that you that there there are states that will do contracts themselves. So interstate contracts remains a thing. Uh, you know, mostly on you know uh, you know exchange of military you know purchase and sale of military equipment uh, or engaging kind of uh, in agreements on outer space uh, you know uh, uh, activities and the like. And you know so a number of states will enter into contracts where they will agree uh, that their own law or the other state's law or some third state's law will be the governing law of the contract. Um, that's not universal. There are a number of states that seem to, to say they did not have a practice of concluding, contracts as a state, um, but almost all of them allow their institutions to conclude contracts. And of course, private actors and others uh, may do so as well. In terms of political commitments, I think the, the, the flexibility of that form means that the capacity, there, there really were, I didn't find any limits on who might conclude them. Uh, you know, the, I, the, I think the very appeal of a political commitment is that it, uh, you're not worrying about legal personality, you're not worrying about capacity. And so you can have political commitments done among nation states, but they can also be done uh, uh, among state institutions, uh, but they can also involve, you know, uh, private actors and firms or kind of all three. Um, and I think in my report, I cite the recent Paris call on trust and security in, in cyberspace, which has like nine founding kind of principles and now a thousand signatories, including I think 67 nation states, a number of Subnational territorial units like the U.S. states of Virginia and Colorado, but also firms like Facebook and Microsoft uh, and others. And so, you know, I think you know here the guidelines kind of recommend uh, as best practices that states do more to both uh, uh, figure out and confirm that they've they've worked through uh, the questions of capacity for their own institutions, and also being more public 
uh, with other states and other state institutions about what their own capacities are uh, and, and, and making sure that you know, we don't have uh, states or state institutions getting sideways with misunderstandings or misaligned um, expectations. Um, the, the thing that I think generated the most interest and perhaps most uh, controversy for member states is how do we identify the treaty, the contract, the political commitment, uh, you know, and, and what are the methods for doing so? And as I suggested, the guidelines start with the proposition that first things first is make sure you have an agreement uh, at all, right? Um, you know, distinguishing unilateral declarations, distinguishing statements that don't actually contain uh, any commitment to future behavior that will qualify uh, as an agreement. And then kind of ask, well, is it binding uh, or not? And, and here, uh, you know, drawing on, um, you know, both various literatures, but also the member state responses, uh, there seems to be a priority, obviously, to look at the text uh, as a way to identify the status of the agreement, but also to consider the surrounding circumstances and to consider the, the, the subsequent practice. Um, and I would note here uh, a, a real divide uh, between particularly a number of member states, uh, but also the International Court of Justice between what I've called the intent test and the objective test. Uh, and the intent test derives from the work of the ILC as well, uh, you see it in the Trevaux for the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties. And this was the idea that we would be able to identify at least treaties by the intent of the states that make them. That is, if the states intend to make a treaty, uh, it's, a, it, it's a treaty. If they do not intend for their agreement to be a treaty, then they can kind of deny it uh, that status. So it's a subjective test, uh, as it were. Um, whereas if you look at the court, I think, um, you know, beginning with uh, Qatar uh, v. Bahrain, but also in kind of pulp mills and later cases, we, the court does not seem as concerned with subjective indicia uh, or subjective manifestations of intent uh, so much as the objective, uh, you know, evidence of an agreement. And so that the ICJ and as a result, a number of other member states have kind of said, look, um, we're not going to worry about subjectively, you know, do, do all the participants agree that they had intended a treaty or did they all agree not to have a treaty, but a contract or a political commitment? Um, the idea would be that you would look at the text itself and say the, the use of certain clauses, the use of certain language um, uh, is what's going to set the status uh, of the agreement. And I think, you know, from a, from a practical standpoint, you know, there are this is going to not be a, a huge problem in that both tests kind of tend to look at the same suite of materials. Um, and so, you know, in many cases, they may lead to the same outcome. Um, I think that the challenge is when, um, you know, you have, say, a text that is uh, objective indicia of, say, a treaty, but the surrounding circumstances cut the other way. Um, you could see the tests leading in different directions. So like if you look at the South China, South China Sea arbitration, um, that arbitral tribunal said that it was following the intent test to decide whether certain agreements that China and the Philippines had entered into uh, were binding or not. And it, you know, it, it found evidence that they were, they were not intended to, to be binding, both uh, you know, by, by looking at surrounding statements that China or others had made calling these instruments political documents. And yet the texts themselves often use words like agree uh, and undertake that the ICJ has suggested are, are, are indicative of a treaty. 
And so, you know, the, the challenge there, you have to ask if the South China Sea uh, case had been before the International Court of Justice, would it have reached a different conclusion by applying the objective test because the surrounding circumstances pointed uh, to uh, a non-treaty instrument, but you know, objectively, just looking at that text, it suggested that there was. Uh, you know, so I, I think there is this concern that this uh, that this potential kind of divergence of two states applying two different tests leading to different results is out there. And there's been some some other concrete cases, particularly in the 1980s. Uh, you know, there were a number of MOUs that the U.S concluded with uh, its Commonwealth allies, including the United Kingdom, but also Australia and I think Canada, uh, that the Commonwealth countries said, oh, it's an MOU, uh, it's non-binding um, and kind of just on the face. And the US had always thought that its intention was clear that they, uh, that these uh, would be binding. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, they ended up having to kind of get back together and do a chapeau agreement that was binding to clarify their status. Because in the US case, it needed those agreements to be binding as a matter of US domestic law because it couldn't share certain military intelligence or other information in the absence of, of a binding agreement. Um, so how do we, how do we kind of uh, bridge this gap? Uh, you know, one thing I said was, how about states be more um, explicit? Um, you know, in the non-binding context with respect to political commitments, you often see something in the text of the political commitment that disavows its status um, as uh, as a treaty, um, and and you know that can be affirmatively uh, disavowing it or kind of by implication. You know the Helsinki Accords, for example, famously said, "Oh, you know what? All this sixty-eight whatever articles that precede this, you know, we're not registering this with the UN, so don't infer that this is a treaty." When it comes to treaties, though, very rarely does one see the the uh, the parties kind of explicitly indicating the their. Uh, intention to create a treaty. And I'm suggesting that, you know, they might think about doing so, particularly um, in the interinstitutional context, um, to, to make it clear, to avoid uh, the very sorts of, you know, uh, cases that I was just describing. And one, uh, you know, actually in contracts, far more often does see a governing law clause where, you you know, the participants will select the governing law of the, of the of the contract. So, you know, as a first order of business, the, the OAS guidelines uh, suggest, you know, we could see, we should see states doing more of this. But what if they don't? Um, here, um, I tried to come up with, uh, and this I think was the, you know, for academics, probably not so interesting, but for member states, they were so excited about this. I've gotten such positive feedback. Um, they, you know, it's not like, you know, Tony Oss book or my work on this hadn't done this before, but they really liked having you know a list of what are the titles that point one way or another even though I, I should be fairly clear the guidelines uh favor as a best practice a holistic approach I, you know i am not a fan of magic words right uh, i don't think just because the text uses the verb shall then that means you automatically have a binding agreement and you know have to figure out whether it's binding under international law or domestic law i, I mean i think you can you can say we shall work towards and therefore take away whatever, you know, binding suggestions Shell might have by the, that, you know, additional language. Um, and so, you know, I, I put this list up with the cautionary note that this, these are things that are indicative, but not determinative uh, of uh, an agreement status. But, but looking across state practice, you know, um, there is this tendency, you know, if you're going to call, you know, if you're calling something a treaty, the tendency is it's going to be a treaty, um, uh, whereas, you know, uh, at least, you know, arrangements or statements of intent will lean the other way, you know, and similarly, um, 
when you start to see verbs like should seek, expect, uh, and the like, that might be more indicative of a political commitment uh, versus you know the shalls, the musts, the donats, and, and the like. Um, so um, in terms of you know international contracts, um, you know I think. Um, the OAS, I should say, and my committee in particular had done previously the year before my guidelines, guidelines on international uh, contracts, so I can refer you to that. Um, but, you know, was that states should use a governing law clause because there remains this question of when two states enter into uh, an agreement, and it's clearly an agreement, and it's clearly binding, and it's silent as to governing law. Should we presume that it defaults to international law, or do we presume it defaults to domestic law? And I tend to uh, personally favor the default to, to treaty laws. I do think a majority of scholars who've looked at the question do, although there's older work by, you know, J.S. Fawcett and others that would go the other way. And so here again, just as kind of a best practice, uh, you know, the committee urges states that if you're going to do an interstate contract, say, you know, the states should have a governing clause to make it clear that it's, it's a, a state law, a domestic law, not international law that will, will govern. Um, and, you know, it, it, it can also be, you know, it could be, you know, if the U.S. and Brazil are concluding a contract, as they've done, for example, on, um, you know, certain um, international space station cooperation and the like, you know, they could pick Brazilian law, they can pick U.S. law, but they could also pick, you know, Swiss law uh, or even things like Lex Mercatoria uh, or Uni Dois principles uh, and, and, and the like. Um, um, you know, I, as I said, I think the presumption should be that it's a treaty, but again, I'd emphasize these guidelines are not attempt to codify international law. Uh, a number of me member states were, wanted it also, you know, us to be clear that we weren't progressively trying to develop law. This is more literally just, you know, ways to avoid problems uh, that states might uh, might think about. So, you know, when I, when I suggest there's a presumption, I don't mean to suggest that in a legal sense, but just more as a practical way for, for how states and others might approach these issues. Um, in terms of uh, avoiding the ambiguities uh, and the, the fears that led Brazil, Peru, Chile to propose this project, obviously ex ante, right? Uh, we could develop um, some different procedures uh, for making binding and non-binding agreements so that states and their institutions are much more clear upfront what direction uh, they're heading in, you know, that they are, they are conscious when they're in the treaty lane versus when they're in the political commitment lane versus the contract lane uh, and the like. Uh, and being more public about what capacities they regard their ministries, their agencies, and themselves to, uh, to engage in, um, you know, to be clear, you know, which states think that their provinces or regional governments can conclude treaties, uh, can conclude uh, political commitments, and which think that those are off limits, um, you know, and I think other states would benefit from, from that. Um, and I think, for my part, the lawyer the treaty drafter in me says, you know, there, there's real opportunity, obviously, in the text of the instrument, the text of the agreement itself, uh, to be more uh, explicit uh, about what type uh, of agreement is being uh, contemplated. Um, and I think one of the things that might also be useful is public registries. Um, obviously, you know, under the UN Charter states are to register their treaties with the UN. I think if you talk to the UN Treaty Office, state practice remains mixed on that and certainly often delayed. Um, but most nation states, uh, I don't know all, but most nation states do have their own registry of what their treaty commitments are and they are often quite public. What you don't see are similar registries of contracts or political commitments 
although a number of states, I think principally Canada, but also I think Germany have begun to do so, right? That they've begun to say, we're not gonna just catalog what our treaties are, but we'll also catalog our political commitments. And I, you know, from my perspective, that's a, a welcome development. I'd say many years ago, I was in the State Department treaty office in the US government. Um, and you know, we, we would be very careful to say, you know, is this a treaty? Or is it a political commitment? But once we decided it was a political commitment, you know, it, it, it got lucky if it ended up in a file anywhere at all versus, you know, the treaties where we had a vault and a carefully curated collection, uh, you know, including, you know, collecting the travaux and the like. And I think the nature of political commitments, whether it's, you know, the Iran deal, which is back in the news, I guess, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the near term, um, or you know other you know major political commitments are the sorts of things that we might want to see some catalogs of in public registries for. And as I suggested, maybe you know more training uh, uh, of relevant officials, both in foreign ministries but also in these institutions, because I think that's what a number of member states reported is that you know they had these problems where institutions were going off and doing unauthorized uh, agreements in, in some in some way. Um, and how do we you know how how do you rein them in? After the fact, um, I think, you know, is this holistic approach that I've already described. Look at that text, you know, the actual language, look at the final clauses. Um, you know, I think the ICJ itself has said, look, if you have an entry into force clause, that's pretty indicative that, that it's a, a treaty, uh, for example, uh, or, or is there a termination or withdrawal clause? The, the absence of those clauses, though, may not be determinative, right? Like, you know, the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties has provisions on termination and withdrawal precisely to cover cases where states don't put those uh, conditions into the treaty itself. I think the surrounding circumstances leading up to the agreement's conclusion um, uh, are also quite relevant. Are there contemporaneous statements saying the instrument was, you know, political or voluntary uh, or, or, you know, mentions of domestic law or the like? And then obviously the subsequent practice of the agreement participants is quite relevant in terms of how they characterize it. Um, uh, or engage with it, right? Do they register it at the United Nations? Does one or both register it? Um, do they, you know, what are the procedures if they amend it? How do they go about doing that um, and, and the like? I think, um, uh, you know, there've been a few cases where a dispute resolution is used to resolve uh, it, but I, I think where if, you know, if all of this fails, you know, that's where states should consider looking to some third party to help mediate uh, you know, a, a divergent set of views of what sort of agreement they've concluded, uh, as it were, or or go ahead and terminate it uh, or supplant it in some way, as I, I think I mentioned the U.S. did with, you know, its Canadian, uh, U.K. and Australian counterparts when it discovered, you know, one side thought there were non-binding MOUs and the other side thought they were actually legally binding under international law MOUs. The, the, the idea was let's, let's, you know, come up with some sort of overarching framework to, 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 to cover both sides' interests. Um, you know, the chapeau agreement, as, as it was called. Um, on procedures, you know, there's a tremendous diversity um, for how states authorize treaty making. I think one of the things I, I'd emphasize up front uh, was uh, the committee's view. My view was um, that states will often decline to call something a treaty for domestic procedural purposes that is a treaty under international law. So, you know, executive agreements, congressional executive agreements, uh, you know, basically things that um, either have no legislative oversight or, or limited legislative inputs, you know, a number of states will say, oh, they're not treaties. Our treaties are only those that go to our Senate or, or, or that get certain approval uh, out of our, our legislature. Those are domestic categories, you know, but at the end of the day, to, if, if the state regards the agreement as being governed by international law for purposes of this project, 
uh, we treated it as a treaty. And that diversity of procedures um, was such that I think, you know, the guidelines preach freedom. I mean, indeed, you know, you have the Commonwealth approach where um, the, the state is authorized to all treaty making uh, without any parliamentary uh, oversight or involvement until such time as the United Kingdom wants to have it take some domestic legal form or have some domestic legal status. Whereas other states kind of say, you can't even conclude the treaty without that sort of legislative uh, approval or, or consultation. Um, I think one of the things I came away from thinking about this, particularly for at least maybe the most significant political commitments or interstate contracts that states should have you know, procedures for authorizing them, uh, some states already do. Colombia, for example, reported uh, foreign ministry consultations uh, and uh, foreign ministry legal advisor uh, office sign off on political commitments, both to make sure that they're not treaties, but also to make sure that the political commitment aligned with the foreign policy interests of Colombia uh, and its government. Uh, and as I've already suggested, you know, there, there could be more procedures to publicize or to create registries, uh, not just of, of treaties, but of contracts and political commitments. Um, um, you know, so, so registries for both binding and non-binding agreements. So kind of, uh, kind of winding down here, um, let me talk a little bit about legal effects. I think, you know, when we talk about the legal effects of treaties with a group like this, you know, I think most of them are quite obvious. Obviously, you know, there's Pactus and Servanda, the idea that international law, you know, creates primary uh, obligations, um, you know, via a treaty, that what the treaty ob obliges you to do or not do or permits you to do, th that follows. I think the other thing that obviously, if you label something a treaty or it qualifies as a treaty are the, the secondary legal effects. It triggers um, other legal regimes uh, that apply. And of course that includes the law of treaties, right? So if you have a treaty, we can look to the law of treaties for conditions on exit for what happens in the case of breach, what are the rules on formation or limitations thereon, reservations and the like. But also, you know, to the extent that we have something that's governed by international law, we trigger other uh, areas like state responsibility, or if it's an IO, international organization responsibility. Um, if it's a treaty in a particular area on human rights, you know, it may trigger a, a set of kind of, um, you know, regime specific set of legal effects. And of course, for some, some states, particularly some in the OAS region, there'll be domestic legal effects that, you know, some treaties by their very conclusion will have the status uh, of domestic law, whether equivalent to statutes, uh, equivalent to just regulations, but not statutes, or even, you know, in the OAS region, certain human rights treaties have constitutional effect and actually outweigh or are equivalent to their constitutional provisions. Other states, there may be no legal effects uh, domestically to a treaty. Contracts, uh, you know, this is an international law discussion group. I won't talk about contracts, legal effects in detail unless you want to in the Q&A. I think the, the big thing was the legal effects on political uh, commitments was, first of all, that, that there are effects from following a political commitment or walking away from one. Um, one only has to look, I think, at, you know, how, how, you know, the reactions, for example, to things like the Helsinki Accords over the years and the like to see that, that you know, political commitments can have significant reputational effects. All member states, though, disavowed uh, the idea that um, a political commitment could create grounds for estoppel and that there could be, you know, direct legal effects under international law for a political commitment, something I think um, had been debated among scholars for a number of years. But that doesn't mean that they're not legally relevant. So, for example, um, political commitments can be a precursor 
to uh, a, a treaty. Um, you know, I think the Rotterdam Convention is a good example of something that began as a political commitment that then states sat down and put it into a treaty form. Uh, political commitments at the international stage can take a domestic legal form. So the Kimberley process on blood diamonds, non-binding internationally, but, but domestically a number of states have passed laws that, that put that political commitment uh, into a binding form um, domestically. Um, and they can also be a basis for interpretation. I think it's important to note, for example, that the recent work of the International Law Commission on subsequent agreements and subsequent practice noted that subsequent agreements for interpretive purposes can be binding, but they could also be non-binding so that political commitments can have legal relevance as, a, as, a, as, a, as an interpretive tool for other uh, tr you know, binding treaties as it were. Um, I think for interinstitutional agreements, again, it's really going to depend on what category you've decided that interinstitutional agreement is. Um, but I think almost all the member states said that when you have a, an agreement among provinces or among ministries, the responsibility of the state as a whole is triggered. One, maybe two states uh, kind of took a different view. Mexico actually has a domestic law that says that when its institutions conclude agreements governed by public international law, they are not uh, putting the responsibility of Mexico as a whole uh, on, on, on the line, that it is only the institution that is responsible for those interinstitutional agreements. Uh, another state um, has hinted that they think the law might be changing. So there is this potential that if we're seeing kind of these institutions having their own legal personality and concluding their own agreements, that they might you know, have their own responsibility. But, but again, the majority of states that I heard from in this project kind of preferred the um, Articles of State Responsibility, Article 4 approach that said, you know, the acts of an organ of the state will, will trigger the responsibility of the state as a whole. But again, I think it's really important for states to be aware that's not a uniform view. And that like, for example, if you're doing an institutional agreement with Mexico, you need to be aware of its views and, and maybe draft around it. Maybe the two states agree that, you know, that for purposes of that interinstitutional agreement, the state as the whole is on the hook, or they agree to limit responsibility to the institutions themselves. Um, uh, you know, the training and education piece, I think, is, is relatively obvious and maybe of less intellectual interest. So let me just put it up there. Um, and I think I'm pretty much at time. I was told to kind of talk for 40 to 45 minutes. I think I'm there. Um, and hopefully, you know, um, it's, uh, you know, I haven't put you to, to sleep mid, mid or post lunch. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, I think I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to come talk about this project. Again, it was done for the member states uh, of the OAS at their request. But obviously, as we got into this project, um, it was pretty clear that there's a, the global relevance of kind of trying to sort and define these categories and kind of both practically, but also conceptually thinking through what their legal effects would be, what procedures we might use uh, and the like. So I hope it's of broader interest than it was uh, in the region. Uh, and again, you know, uh, you can get your, you get your copies now uh, free off the OAS website if, if it is the sort of thing you're interested in. So let me stop there and, and hope, fingers crossed, that I've said something that will trigger you uh, to, to object or scream. I've already been yelled at about this project in, 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 in various ways. Um, you know, in earlier reports, I did try as, as a rapporteur to reflect all the inputs um, that I could. So but let me stop there. And I don't know whether I've, I, I, um, I handle my own questions or, or if you all, Natasha or Chaitian, want to moderate them for me. Let me know how, how you all prefer to do it. Thanks, though.